It is not unexpected to see poor reporting and misinformation coming from Brian Deere, the lead reporter in the recent BMJ coverage. But to see coverage in other media that cites Deere's shoddy journalism in the BMJ as a final justification to claim there is no link between vaccines and autism is ludicrous. The MMR is only one vaccine of the 11 vaccinations of the pediatric schedule that has been studied for causing developmental problems such as autism. That is fact, not opinion. Any medical professional, government official, or journalist who states that the case is closed on whether vaccines cause autism is jumping to conclusions without the research to back it up. Statement by Andrew Wakefield, issued January 13, 2011, in response to retraction of his paper and reporting by Brian Deere in a British Medical Journal. Welcome to the Politics of Pandemics, Episode 13, The Doctor Who Fooled the World, Part 2. When we last left Andrew Wakefield, he had just left the Royal Free Hospital. He would spend a lot of time in the United States, where he would continue to work to promote a link between autism and vaccines. The scope of his research now changed and expanded thanks to the media attention he gained, and Wakefield began to gather friends and celebrity endorsers. As he built an empire of lies through his status as a hero in the anti-vaccination movement. Back home in the UK, a journalist called Brian Deere began to take a look into Wakefield and the MMR scare. In a sea of uncritical, even fawning coverage, Deere began to dig into Wakefield and his flawed paper, as well as the connections he made in the lead-up to the study's publishing in The Lancet and immediately after. It would culminate in a series of explosive articles in the Sunday Times and a documentary that would lead to Wakefield's downfall in the UK. Much of this episode's revelations come from those articles, primarily by Brian Deere, same as the last episode. So before we get into how Deere flipped the script on Wakefield's lies, let's go back to when Wakefield was let go from the Royal Free in 2001. resignation from Royal Free, both sides painted the departure as a mutual and amicable decision. Behind the scenes though, it was the end result of two years of trouble. Because while all this controversy was going on, Wakefield and his partners drew up plans for some new ventures. We had mentioned prior that Wakefield had plans for a new measles vaccine that never materialized. Another venture would also produce testing for Wakefield's invented disease of autistic enterocolitis, the quote, litigation-driven testing, to quote the prospectus, is expected to bring in as much as 28 million British pounds. Since being thrust into the spotlight, Wakefield was busier building relationships with investors than doing the science, even as said science behind his claims remained flimsy. Deere's articles attributes the beginning of the end to the new head of medicine in 1999, Mark Pepys. Just a few months before the launch of the ventures, Pepys and his leadership team issued a letter that contained the following excerpt. Quote, 
we remain concerned about a possible serious conflict of interest between your academic employment at UCL and your involvement with Carmel. This concern arose originally because the company's business plan appears to depend on premature, scientifically unjustified publication of results, which do not conform to the rigorous academic and scientific standards that are generally accepted. This caused the scheme to fall apart. Deals dried up, and launch was cancelled. But the Royal Free Hospital gave him a chance to test his theory, offering assistance on a study of as many as 150 children. They gave him an opportunity to stay employed with the Royal Free while strengthening his findings. And then they waited. And waited. For two years, the study Wakefield promised never materialized. And, finally out of patience, Wakefield was practically paid to leave in October 2001, as Pepper's told Deer. Wakefield kept the patent to his measles vaccines. He would later misrepresent his departure, saying, quote, I've been asked to go because my research results were unpopular. But Wakefield never formally replicated the results of his early report, in London or in America. None of this was publicly revealed to the public until years after the firing. The next two years would see the peak of the MMR scare and Andrew Wakefield moving to America. As briefly mentioned in the last episode, even Prime Minister Tony Blair was questioned whether he and his wife vaccinated their child with the MMR vaccine. He gave an effusive non-answer. An article in the magazine Private Eye painted a very positive portrait of jabs. The organization mentioned previously that provided many of the children at Wakefield's study. This, in addition to public support for Wakefield by tabloids such as the Daily Mail, meant controversy for the MMR raged on. Similar to how the UK media treated other controversies like Princess Diana's death, sensationalism was more important than factual analysis. This is where I will briefly talk about Brian Deere. Deere is an investigative journalist that focuses heavily on the medical and pharmaceutical industry, with a career stretching back into the 1980s. Then, he exposed the fraudulent work of a British scientist in Australia studying the contraceptive pill. The research, funded by a pharmaceutical company, will give the pill a more positive profile than in reality. It is a piece that investigated an early vaccine scare involving the diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis vaccine, and concluded that, despite well-accepted beliefs, that vaccine did not cause brain damage. That same year, he also debunked the shot touted as the first AIDS vaccine in 1988 that ended up not working. His career is full of exposés of fraudulent medical stories, unethical medical professionals or researchers touting a drug or scare that would turn out to be false. The way Mr. Deer tells it, he was given a routine assignment looking into the record low confidence of the MMR vaccine in late 2003. What was meant to be a short investigation turned into a massive expose that will consume both Deer and Wakefield for the next 20 years. The first article in the Sunday Times was published on February 2004. This is where the world found out about the conflicts of interest Wakefield had his relationship with Richard Barr, and the flaws in the study itself. 
revealed how most of the 12 families involved in the study were involved in litigation that the study was meant to be used as evidence. The article, subsequent follow-up, and the TV special Brian Deere hosted that premiered on November 2004 would sharply change opinion. Deere told the world many things that were revelations even to some of the people that Wakefield worked with. This began a slow cascade of consequences. Ten days later, ten of the thirteen co-authors of the 1998 paper issued a partial retraction of the report, basically the conclusion Wakefield had been selling. While the editor-in-chief of The Lancet admitted that the paper should never have been published. When the Dispatcher's TV special came out, Brian Deere did not hold back. He highlighted the conclusion between the Royal Free and Wakefield, how the leadership there publicly protected Wakefield during the campaign against the MMR vaccine, despite the known lack of evidence. He showed why Wakefield was pushing for a single vaccine, despite evidence contradicting both his conclusions about the link between measles and autism, as well as the efficacy of his reported solution. In no uncertain terms, Deere alleged a conspiracy to lie to the public pushed by Wakefield and supported by Royal Free and other stakeholders. By then, Andrew Wakefield was in the US, working for an organization called the International Child Development Resource Center. This is a Florida-based organization that is afflicted closely with a Christian organization called the Good News Doctor Foundation, and we'll get back to them in a moment. After the film was aired, Wakefield quickly sued Deer, his namesake website, the Sunday Times, and the production company. But that lawsuit would be dropped, primarily due to later revelations about undisclosed payments totaling £435,000 to Wakefield. Wakefield's lawsuit was funded by the Medical Protection Society, a board that helps doctors out with legal troubles, but that revelation caused the board to drop their support. Wakefield still was defended by many others, even after the articles first came out. The Daily Mail supported him. A well-known science communicator, Ben Goldacre, stood by his side for years. And of course, Wakefield had gathered an army of supporters from in the UK and in his future adopted country of the United States. While portions of the Dispatch's film was broadcast in the US, Wakefield had picked up powerful friends who stood by him in the face of all evidence. Still, the steady stream of articles over the years would make Wakefield's list of professional defenders thin out. Between 2007 and 2010, the UK General Medical Council issued the longest hearing in its history regarding the professional conduct of Andrew Wakefield and two other colleagues. Covering just about everything we mentioned and more, the 217-day hearing would rule against Wakefield on all charges brought, and in May 2010, revoke Wakefield's medical license. The Lancet would finally issue a full retraction of Wakefield's 1998 paper in response. Andrew Wakefield had finally become a pariah. Brian Deere would expand upon his initial reporting in a series of articles for the British Medical Journal, further exposing the web of businesses Wakefield and his co-conspirators built in anticipation of a windfall as a result of the MMR scare as well as several other key findings that we've touched on. Deere would go on to be named the UK's Specialist Journalist of the Year in the British Press Awards in 2011. In the meantime, however, Wakefield would continue to completely deny Deere's accusations, 
alleging that the articles were, quote, utter nonsense. Wakefield sued Deer again in 2012, this time for defamation. The lawsuit was dismissed, and Wakefield was ordered to pay the costs of all parties. There's a lot of information not mentioned here. Years of diligent investigations summarized in a few thousand words does not do it justice. What's clear is that calling the MMR scare the biggest medical fraud of the 20th century is not too far off, except maybe for the US opioid crisis. And Deere's work allowed the damage caused by Wakefield to be mitigated for at least a while, at least in the UK. Andrew Wakefield was done as a doctor, but he was just getting started as a media sensation. In my view, one of the most frustrating defenses offered by Wakefield's defenders is that he's only trying to help people. That's obviously an emotional retort, not a logical one, suggesting intent is the only thing that matters. Wakefield and all other medical grifters like Del Pictree, Mike Adams, Joseph McCuller, and so many others are like that, giving false hope to impacted parents and making a ton of money off of them and then turning their victims into an army of defenders through emotional appeal. For Wakefield and his co-conspirators, the emotional appeal lies in telling parents of sick or autistic children things that they want to hear, and stringing them on. You will notice this theme amongst most of the people Wakefield involved himself with. So let's rewind back to 2004. As mentioned, Wakefield left the Royal Free in 2001 and moved to the United States. As in the UK, he began to tour the speaking circuit across the pond, mainly speaking to organizations and conferences with autism in the name, but relying on flimsy signs and charlatans like Wakefield himself. Brian Deere had also highlighted that Wakefield was director of research at the International Child Development Resource Center in 2004. That's probably a good place to start talking about the people around Wakefield's orbit. The Center and the Good News Doctor Foundation was founded by a doctor named Jeff Bradstreet, a religious man and former preacher. He began to focus on autism due to the diagnosis of his son and stepson. The direction he went, however, was in the promotion of spurious cures for autism and promoting the falsehood that mercury existed in vaccines. He also followed Wakefield's lead testifying in the U.S. Congress in 2002 about how his son showed symptoms of autism two months after taking the MMR vaccine. Over his career, Bradstreet and the organizations he founded would promote cures for autism ranging from the useless, like homeopathy, to the absolutely dangerous, like chelation. Chelation is used to remove metals from the blood in the cases of acute poisoning. But Bradstreet thought that using the procedure would remove the vaccine-induced mercury from the blood of an autistic child. But Bradstreet thought that using the procedure to remove the vaccine-induced mercury from the blood of an autistic child would reverse the child's symptoms, effectively curing autism. In one case detailed in the report, Colton Snyder, 
visited Bradstreet's office over 160 times and was subjected to numerous chelation treatments, among many others, despite no evidence of abnormal mercury in his body. The same report that detailed Colton's treatment stated that 30 to 40% of his patients received chelation. Wakefield's relationship with Jeff Bradstreet did not seem to last that long, as in 2004, he formed the Thoughtful House in Austin, today called the Johnson Center. He served as its executive director and public face until the UK scandal forced his resignation in 2010. He was never licensed as a medical professional in the US, and these nonprofits served as a way for Wakefield to get in touch with influential people. When the center was formed, it had supporters like former Dell executive Charlie Ball and director Robert Rodriguez. Rodriguez and his wife credits Wakefield for his son's health, saying that he, quote, would have been in a victim of immune overload had we followed the regular vaccine schedule. In 2005, Wakefield spoke at a national mall in Washington, D.C., backed by then-Congressman Dan Burton. One of the biggest supporters Wakefield picked up is model and host Jenny McCarthy, who also came into Wakefield's orbit due to her autistic son. She would write the foreword to Wakefield's autobiography, Callous Disregard. When the investigation in the UK ruled against Wakefield into early 2010, she and her boyfriend at the time, actor Jim Carrey, issued a statement that read, It is our most sincere belief that Dr. Wakefield and parents of children with autism around the world are being subjected to a remarkable media campaign engineered by vaccine manufacturers. Dr. Wakefield is being vilified through a well-orchestrated smear campaign. Post the scandal, Wakefield continues to be busy making nonprofits with autism in the name. The first one is Strategic Autism Initiative, which he formed with Polly Tommy, who has an autistic son and is heavily involved with pushing autism-related media in the UK, like the magazine The Autism File. Tommy would help Wakefield with expanding his media empire, as well as establish her own. She appeared in his films, and her whole family is involved with a film company, Peeps TV, that makes anti-vaccine content as well. Their flagship series, Truth, is hosted by noted anti-vaccine activist and future podcast subject, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. In 2013, Wakefield, rather amusingly, was caught by The Guardian trying to sell an autism-related reality show to TV execs. As far as I know, it didn't work. In 2016, he directed an anti-vaccination film, Vaxxed, which had a sequel in 2019 and features several of the people mentioned in the preceding episode. By now, he was going much, much further than he ever did during the initial MMR scare. Wakefield had been alleging a conspiracy by governments and the medical and pharmaceutical establishment of plotting against him for telling an uncomfortable truth, a message appealing to the anti-vaccination people he had aligned with. In Vaxxed, he makes the claim that 80% of the boys in the US could be at risk of getting autism by 2032 if children continue to be given the MMR vaccine accusing the U.S. CDC of colluding with drug makers to cover up the claims. The film, 
was selected by actor Robert De Niro for screening at the Tribeca Film Festival. De Niro, who is one of the festival's founders and has an autistic child, would later pull the film from screening following backlash. victory for conspiracy theories and anti-vaccination advocates even before COVID-19 virus existed. He had tweeted speculating a link between the vaccines and autism before, many times. In August 2016, he had met with anti-vaccination activists and promised to watch Wakefield's film, Vaxxed. Apparently he had told Wakefield, quote, I'm gonna do something about this because I know it happened. I've seen it in people who work with me and their children. You can chalk this up to Trump's pandering, but he had issued enough anti-vaccination statements to enough people to make anti-vaccination activists very happy. It is perhaps no accident that Wakefield was spotted at Trump's inauguration, and when the COVID-19 pandemic began, he was right there, towing the line with regards to the conspiracies he espouted. Wakefield spoke at a conference called the Health Freedom Summit in May 2020, where he said the virus was no worse than a seasonal flu that it was a ploy to push mandatory vaccinations, and that the crisis was overblown on purpose and led to, quote, a destruction of people and families and unprecedented violations of health freedom. And it's all based on a fallacy. He also shows this penchant for the dramatic, ending his speech saying in part, as Nelson Mandela said in his trial, there are ideals worth dying for. I don't want to get too dramatic, but better to die as a free man than live as a slave. We have to fight to preserve our freedom because it will be surely stripped from us in a very short space of time if we don't. In another separate interview, he says, quote, a messenger RNA vaccine is actually genetic engineering. By now, in early 2022, Andrew Wakefield seems to be overshadowed by many of his fellow travelers in the anti-vaccine movement. But he can probably retire wealthy from all the profits he obtained from his lucrative career, selling anti-vaccine propaganda to anxious parents. The way he used fear in the media, the emotional appeals, the victim complex, Wakefield pioneered or popularized many of these techniques. Echoes of his work still resonate today. The lies he started, the network he was part of. He is a key reason why the anti-vaccine movement in the COVID-19 era is so powerful today. However, that still left many children unvaccinated, and by 2007, measles was once again declared endemic, meaning it was sustained amongst the population. Several outbreaks have been reported since, including a major outbreak in Swansea in 2013, 
that resulted in 1,219 cases. And the dip in MMRI take-ups at the turn of the millennium would have had long-lasting consequences. The unvaccinated children would become adults by 2018 and start attending pubs and music festivals and traveling to countries with endemic cases. These would be the cause for a new wave of measles cases starting in 2018 that never really stopped. As I'm writing this, a new article by the BBC came out stating that the UK's two-dose coverage amongst five-year-olds is just 85.5%, lower than the 95% needed for herd immunity and the lowest in a decade. Complacency and increasing belief in conspiracy theories and changing priorities due to COVID-19 pandemic is setting the stage for measles to return again in the British Isles. Measles outbreaks are happening in the United States as well. The reasoning is different from the UK, with an independent beginning that Wakefield helped develop and bolster. Next week, it's time we begin to look at how the various communities and groups in the USA would eventually coalesce and develop into the robust anti-vaccine movement that Andrew Wakefield was also part of. Sources for this episode can be found in the episode description. For correspondence and corrections, please message me on Twitter at polypandemicpod. If I can make this podcast work, I would like to hear from you, your story of dealing with this pandemic or any disease, and if you have any suggestions for future topics you'd like me to look into. I apologize once again for my mistakes, truncations, and pronunciation errors I have made in the preceding episode. As always, if you can, get yourself and everyone you know, absolutely boosted, and ask